Welcome back to Talking PFAS podcast. And if you're joining us for the first time, a very special welcome. I'm a journalist and your host, Kayleen Bell. Today's episode was also recorded in September in Adelaide at the International Cleanup Conference. My guests today are from ACOM. And first up, I'll be speaking with Gavin Shearer. Gavin has over 23 years of consulting experience in environmental and contaminated land assessment and remediation. The past 15 years has been in the service of ACOM. During his time in ACOM, Gavin has led teams in both Australia and New Zealand, including Australia's largest geosciences and remediation services team. The Australian Department of Defence client account, as well as Australia and New Zealand's PFAS response teams. Currently, Gavin leads ACOM's global PFAS commercialisation strategy, which includes focusing ACOM's global team to develop, trial and bring to market a world-first on-site cost-effective PFAS destruction solution known as Defluro. Gavin's going to explain what Defluro is in today's episode. Following my chat with Gavin, I'll be speaking with Rachel Casson, also from ACOM, and ACOM's Defluro technology won the the CRC Care Innovation Award at the 2022 Cleanup Conference in Adelaide. The CRC Care Innovation Award recognises researchers and environmental consultants who develop innovative ways to monitor, assess and remediate environmental contamination. The award aims to inspire industry businesses, communities, local governments, schools and individuals to take action toward a more sustainable future. And ACOM's defluoro technology is one of the first commercially available, economical and environmentally sustainable on-site destruction treatment for high concentration PFAS wastes. ACOM's global initiative leader, Gavin Shearer, said the technology uses electrochemical oxidation to break the carbon-fluorine bonds in PFAS, which causes the molecules to break down. An estimated 2 to $4 billion worth of work is required to treat PFAS over the next decade. Now to today's chat, starting with Gavin Shearer from ACOM. Hi, Gavin. It's good to talk to you at Cleanup Conference 2022. Hey, Kayleen. Great to talk to you. What's your PFAS background? Yeah, so my role is I'm a commercial lead at AECOM globally for our PFAS technology. So my role is to actually take technologies that AECOM has developed and take those through to a commercial setting, from testing those scientifically all the way through to applying them to market. So my space that I really play in is around PFAS remediation. How long have you been doing that? In terms of the current role that I've been doing, I've been at AECOM for over 15 years and my role in PFAS has been over the last five years. What is ACOM doing when it comes to PFAS? Well, look, AECOM's been involved in PFAS for over a decade. We've been working with a lot of clients within Australia, the US and Europe in terms of their PFAS response. And that's things like the traditional approaches like investigation, monitoring, risk management, all of those aspects around that. And we've been working on some very high profile sites globally. What we have done beyond that as well is that we saw a section of the market that actually needed support and that was around PFAS remediation. So we focused our efforts on water treatment and water technologies around PFAS and that's where we developed our technology which is Defluoro, which is a water treatment technology to destroy PFAS. Not separate like other technologies but to actually destroy on site. Okay so we're not talking about just filtration. No we're not talking about filtration. So the great thing about Defluoro is that it can be coupled with those 
treatment technology. So if organisations or industries are using those separations, they will be developing a concentrate. Defluoro can come in and destroy that, rather than those traditional approaches like incineration, which are now banned in America within the Department of Defence. Because of emissions. Because of emissions and because of some uncertainty about their actual destruction rates. Right. It is a big issue if you're going to filter it. It's mm-hmm. got to go somewhere, right? If yeah. you're using GAC or resins, then you've got another PFAS end product that you've got to dispose of. Yeah, and they're technologies that are really valuable depending on the circumstance. So, for instance, Defluoro is a technology that uses electrochemical oxidation, which is not a new technology, but the way that we apply that for PFAS destruction is using that with a proprietary electrode, breaks the carbon and fluorine bonds in the PFAS and effectively destroys that without creating hazardous byproducts. And where that is different is that we focus on higher concentration PFAS. So those separation technologies are really great because they can concentrate that down and then Defluoro can come in and treat that. Although Defluoro can be used as a standalone, but it's typically more responsive at those higher levels. That's actually pretty good news. I've been doing this podcast since 2018 Mm -hmm. and many episodes have just been the problems of PFAS. Mm -hmm. So it's really nice to sit down today and talk about a solution. Yes. And not just a semi-solution, it's a whole solution. It's a whole solution that, you know, AECOM has invested a lot of time, energy and money into coming up with something because we saw a need. It's something that is not the ultimate solution to every problem out there with PFAS, but it's one of the solutions and more organisations are developing these technologies and there can be a number of solutions applied for sites but this is one which we actually think is a game changer in the industry because it offers an on-site solution as well so you remove the need for transporting waste off site. Which is great because there's risks in the transport then where do you put the stuff when you take it away and will it be handled properly like with the West Connects tunnel for example a lot of residents were very concerned about all these trucks coming into their communities with the uh, contaminants soil. Yeah, well even when you look back at more traditional contamination approaches before PFAS and other things, transport's always been one of those things where communities have been concerned about truck movements going through towns and those aspects. The more that can be done on site, the more that it can be in a controlled environment where you are not running further risks, the better. Um, Actually, do you do soil? Defluoro doesn't focus on soil. You don't really truck the liquid away? Yes, you do. You truck that off to incineration sites. So there's various types of technologies, but the traditional incineration approach, you can set those up on sites, but it's rare. Normally they're taken to site. For instance, in an Australian circumstance, you can bring that interstate for processing, say to Victoria, and then that can then also then go up to Queensland for destruction. So there's a lot of traffic movement. Yeah, because I believe in Australia, there's only a few limited places. I've not actually spoken to anyone in incineration before Mm -hmm. in the podcast. Will your technology ever work on soil? No, it's not a soil technology. It's a technology that we may develop in the future to be an in situ technology as well, where we can actually place the electrodes in the ground and undertake that approach but right now we're seeing it as an extractive technology for liquids. Soil is not an area we're focused necessarily on. There's other organisations out there doing wonderful things like soil washing and those aspects which also results in liquid concentrate which then defluoro can come in and do that completion, closing the loop effectively and doing the destruction on site with those techs. Outside of that there's also opportunity that defluoro could be established at licensed facilities so waste could be brought to defluoro particularly if you're dealing with lower volume waste. So where it's, it doesn't make sense to take a unit out to site, it may be better to bring that waste to that location. Do you see applications of defluoro, say, for the wastewater industry? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the key 
areas that we're really heavily focused on are those things around those industries like federal government clients around oil and gas majors. So these are organisations where there's been use of liquids for fire training or storage of fire treating chemicals, so like AFFF. Where that's also expanded to in our thinking is those industrial clients where they have used PFAS in their manufacturing processes and are looking at ways where they can treat that liquid before it goes off site. Outside of that as well, there's application in water treatment. So before it heads out to the bay or through further treatment, there's application where defluoro could be treating that liquid as a part of the filtration step. And there's no nasty byproduct. No nasty byproduct. So we do monitor for things. We build a belts and braces approach into it from an emissions testing point of view. We monitor for things like perchlorates to see if we're generating those because it does depend on the concentrations that come through initially. Yeah, of course, but what's in the water to begin to with. Be, to begin with, yes. But defluoro is not a selective technology in terms of just targeting PFAS. It targets organics. So we're able to destroy all those organics as well as the PFAS within those. One thing with defluoro is so we're moving at a pace where we're taking the technology through Australia into the US and into Europe. So we have commercial programs happening across all of those areas. But Australia's been very much a proving ground for this technology. And so a lot of that work has been focused on those federal clients at the start. And then we'll look at ways that we expand that out. So as the industry gets more familiar with the technology, we will look at seeing where we can apply that beyond. And at the moment, we do evaluation testing of those samples in our bench systems to see is it capable of doing that destruction to meet the client's needs. And as we get more and more data, we'll be more confident being able to say that we can fit the fluoro into their waste treatment trains. So let's talk about data for a second. Does it treat long-chain and short-chain PFAS? It, it, it does. So when you look at defluoro, the big punch that it delivers is at the initial punch. So it knocks down those long chains. The short chains are harder to deal with. They do get destroyed, but it takes more time. So when you look at defluoro from one perspective is we take impacted liquids in, and within a sort of 8 to 10-hour mark, we've destroyed about 95% of the PFAS that's in that sample. The shorter chains take longer to deal with. How long? Look, it varies on concentrations, but we're talking potentially you know, another day or so of treatment before they have gone down. The other aspect is that when we talk about defluoro, we have batch systems and flow-through systems. Our batch systems basically have the PFAS circulating through the reactors and the electrodes that we've developed. The flow-through system has less contact time with the electrodes, but flows through rather than recycles through the system. Both are good. Both are working positively in many ways. We're still determining which is the best way to go forward for the, I guess, the less time-intensive approach with this. One type of contamination we're really focused on is AFFF. So destroying those stockpiles, because right now, such high concentrations require incineration. Can we actually destroy that on site? So we've been doing a lot of work around that. We've been working with both our batch systems and our flow-through systems. Our batch system agitates the sample more, so generating more foam. The flow-through system is a lot more gentle on that approach, so it generates less foam. So it still could be a combination of both. It just depends on the circumstance. Because that's highly concentrated, right? It's concentrated PFAS. That's what it is. Where we look at AFFF, for instance, is that's redundant stockpiles now. A lot of organisations are phasing it out. So there's waste products that need to be disposed of, and there's not many options at the moment, generally incineration. So when you look at this from a global perspective, AFFF stockpiles are in the US and across Europe. Australia's done a lot of movement already in this space, but there's a lot of way to go globally. You're talking about the actual AFFF concentrate. Mm -hmm. Yes, the actual product. So where the other aspect is, is that when we have clients 
clients that are washing out fire equipment, so trucks or infrastructure like tanks that store this liquid that used to store AFFF. As they wash that out, it generates a waste product, which has got PFAS in. So that's where that material can be run through things like iron exchange or GAC, or it can be taken off site, but it also can be used in defluoro for that treatment and destruction rather than a separation and then destruction. And can that be used at the fire stations themselves? Yeah, that's the great thing. The unit within Australia is a 20-foot containerised system, and then the one that we're working at the moment in the US is in a 30-foot containerised system. These are not big, but they're not small, and they're able to be mobilised to sites. We've also got other smaller trailer-mounted units that do the same thing, but are better for lower volume. So you would ship these overseas? So we have them built within the countries that we need them. But yes, they're all built to industrial shipping criteria, so they can be moved around the globe. There's plenty of contamination in America. You build one over there, it's going to be busy. Yeah, they've been watching what the world's been doing, but they're making unbelievably good progress in terms of regulating this. And that is a market that we see is one that will continue to expand as more industries get involved in this. But they're not shying away from it. They're looking at it and trying to grapple. They are. I was going to ask you about what your thoughts are on the US EPA. Of course, they're lowering the health advisories, the drinking water guidelines. They're not mandatory yet, but the numbers are going down so they've got some new interim guidelines there very low and then also they're trying to make PFOS and PFOA hazardous substances and they have a rule in at the moment Mm -hmm. in the federal register what are your thoughts on some of those EPA actions that they're trying to do and we've heard a lot at this conference about if those new regulatory levels come in if they're accepted Mm -hmm. there's going to be so many places where the PFAS levels are way above those new advisories. Yeah and look I don't know what the final outcome will be with that. I think all praise to the EPA in regards to regulating this and trying to take a stance with it. Those lower concentrations from my view of working in this space I see it getting lower and lower and lower all the time. You are right that it will identify areas which are at those concentrations and they don't know how to address that. So I think it's a bit of a watch and wait, Kayleen. I don't know if we will have all the solutions when the EPA come through with that, but I think it will generate more innovation in the industry, which is a really good thing. And lower numbers, of course, lower advisories, screening levels, all of that means that there will be more and more industries that are going to be concerned about any PFAS byproducts or waste products coming out of their manufacturing or, for instance, making cosmetics. There'll be PFAS waste just even in making cosmetic paper mills. It's a massive challenge for the industries and I think they are watching this with a lot of uncertainty because they don't know what it will mean for them. So looking at it from their perspective, it must be a very difficult thing to try to see where is this going to end. But also from their perspective, what they need is regulators as well to help provide them with guidance on how they can actually address this. So it's okay to say numbers are getting lower, but okay, if they are, what are we going to do about it? How do we support those industries in making better decisions around how they treat this? And in the podcast, I've talked to a lawyer from Boston who has talked a great deal about litigation in the US Mm -hmm. in particular. And we don't have so much of that in Australia. We've had litigation against Mm defence, but not so many manufacturers or people that use PFAS in their processes. We haven't seen any lawsuits against these industries, but it could happen. 
Could happen, and I think you know you'll see that happen in the U.S. in some degree. A lot. Yeah, I think when you look at industries that are trying to grapple with this, a lot of them aren't trying to shy away from it. They just don't know what the next step is going to be. So they're very eager to engage on this and understand more. They certainly are being educated, and they're trying to understand how they can make it better. But I think where you look at areas where those litigations are occurring or will occur overseas, they're probably areas where either significant mistakes have been made, or there has been maybe. A deliberate view on not considering the consequences. From talking to you today, seems like your technology is a really great solution. Yes, and the other aspect with it, Kayleen, is we're trying to be industry competitive. Feedback we've received from clients has been, it's really great you're developing innovative technologies, but until we're comfortable with these technologies, we're going to rely on more of those traditional approaches because they're proven. So one thing that's really important there is to remain within that cost range to actually make it open to clients to say look we'll give it a go and we'll try that. Is it affordable? Yes. In comparison to other treatments or is it pretty equal? I would say the word is equal. Comparative to those traditional technologies it is not anymore. One great thing about Defluoro is that it is actually using a lot less energy than these other technologies and we actually can operate the systems off solar with battery support which means that they can be delivered to a remote location and where those are traditional costs where people would be paying for transport of waste outside of there at high rates because they're so remote, Defluoro can be mobilised to those locations at the same rate of treatment that you would be paying in more of a metropolitan area but using solar as the way to actually address that. Fantastic. I'm just thinking about farming when you talk about this because biosolids is such a big problem. Yes. And we've heard about that again. And that comes from sewerage sludge. So if a technology like yours could be used by these wastewater treatment plants, I wonder if we'd end up with better biosolids that could then safely be put on agriculture. It's a question mark, isn't it? It's a question mark, but it's a good point you raise. And we have been contacted by many organisations that use biosolids and produce biosolids and wanting to know where defluoro could work for them. It's a step that we still need to make, but it's certainly one that could be really favourable to that side of the industry. And then you've got the solar component. For a farm, farmland areas, it would be very eco-friendly, it seems. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's eco-friendly compared to these other techs anyway. So when you look at the amount of energy that Defluoro uses, you're talking you know, a small apartment type of $50 a day of power consumption. It's not significant. But then if you look at doing solar aspects, it's not to say that the whole system could be run off solar because you know, you're going to be weather-dependent. But if you have battery storage with that, then that is enough to allow it to continue to treat. And that's really great for remote locations. It's also great for locations that aren't remote that just want to be more sustainable in their approach to treatment. Sounds very good. How long has Defluoro been actively being used in the market and at large scale? Yeah, so Defluoro first underwent a series of bench tests and development through smaller systems, but then it was around 12 months ago Defluoro started to undertake commercial programs. So those commercial programs are now occurring here in Australia, they're occurring in the United States and also in Europe. So the programs are moving along and they're working at this stage with a number of clients that are very familiar to AECOM. So we're focusing in on those clients. I do have to ask if you're working with Defence with Defluoro? Yes, we're working with Defence Forces around the world with Defluoro. So a lot of your main work would be military bases? Um, That, but there's certainly others, particularly in Europe, that we're working with as well. But one thing about the federal clients around the military aspect is they've actually been progressive with their approaches moving forward. They want to have solutions. That's where they're very keen. And they're one of the ones that are keen to try new things because what they need is solutions. And 
they don't necessarily want one solution, they want multiple solutions that they can employ for whatever challenge they may have. So has Defluro worked on any large-scale sites in Australia that you got really good results? Yeah, no, we have, and we've achieved destruction rates within 8 to 10 hours which have allowed discharge to the water treatment plants that are on site. So these are sites which have existing water treatment plants. We go in there with Defluro, we've taken wash waters from infrastructure cleaning programs and we've taken AFFF concentrate, we've achieved destruction rates which have allowed that discharge to water treatment which is really great. You know the electroplating industry has been a concern and raised in parliament. A type of PFAS is used in mist suppression Mm -hmm. in electroplating. Would your technology work there for what's being disposed to wastewater? So those industrial processes yes it can work. It requires that that water is collected before discharge that can then be treated using defluoro. So as long as we can collect that water and it's at those levels which defluoro works best at, the higher concentrations, then that's certainly a space that we can employ defluoro in. So doesn't defluoro work at the low levels? It does, but it just takes more energy and time. So where we see the initial hit with defluoro is at those higher concentrations, so we reduce a lot very quickly. These levels are sometimes too high to go through a GAC plant and things like that initially. And if you do send it through, that breakthrough of PFAS coming out of the GAC can occur a lot sooner. So where defluoro is really great is you can actually do that big heavy hit at the front end and have those lower concentrations then move through a GAC program if you want that to happen. Or it can just be a closed loop and have polishing at the back end of it but continue to get that down to 100% destruction. So someone finds out they've got contamination on site and they want a quick solution and they contact you, how quickly could they get a system? It's a really good question. So if someone's got an immediate risk where things are being released then that's probably more around those areas like groundwater and impacts to that so that would be where you would bring in a separation technology initially because it's the lower concentration you would use that separation tech and then defluoro would come in at the back end of that with the concentrate but it can be set up quickly it can be set up super quickly so you only need a day to set the system up it just needs to be mobilized to site connected to power or operating off solar and then it can start treatment do you have these like in a warehouse ready to go i have them in a warehouse that we have which is our defluoro warehouse in Australia and then we also have the systems on site in the US at the moment and Europe as well we have one in Italy at the moment. Fantastic what's the response been even at this conference talking about it? Yeah defluoro is uh, one of those technologies that I think people are very keen to hear more about they want to understand more about how the technology works and particularly at a conference like this Kayleen where you have a lot of scientists and engineers that want the detail around that so that's been a lot of questions around those aspects and you know, working with someone like Rachel Casson, who has invented this technology and developed this technology, she has done an amazing job of explaining that to the industry. We have some presentations on defluoro tomorrow at the conference as well, which is fantastic. So I think we'll generate more questions after that. Where we're finding our clients are particularly interested is to undertake bench feasibility testing to start with. So rather than bring the systems necessarily out to site immediately, they want to understand how is it going to perform, which is a better solution for us as well because then we can be confident that we can provide the right approach to them. Does that mean they bring some of the contamination to you? Or we can take a smaller system to that site. So where we're doing that, if we can work through them with volumes of around 100 litres 
to run through our system and within a few days we can have a response for them once we get the lab analysis back, how that performed. Fantastic. And then if it's successful... We can mobilise the system to site, yeah. Fantastic. Anything else that you want to say about Um, this? Yeah. About PFAS in general? But I think from an AECOM perspective, it's been a really interesting journey to have an innovation like this in terms of AECOM to take that through and develop that. And I think from our perspective as well, it's one solution to a bigger picture, but it's a really powerful solution and we're really happy with it. I think the next steps will really be over the next six to 12 months is showing our clients how this actually really operates on site and can actually respond to their challenges. I think in terms of PFAS generally, I mean, this conference is very interesting. When you look at the last couple of years from the previous conference to now, there has been some really great developments occurring in many areas. There's still a lot of understanding, though, to go. There's still a lot of questions. And there's still a lot of reluctance for people to talk about it. So thank you for talking with me in Talking PFAS podcast. It's really good for everybody to hear about solutions. We get tired of the PFAS problem, which continues to grow. So it's nice to have some solutions. I think got your best results, like the numbers. Oh, well, so 95% in the first eight or so hours, but we're getting within that period of time too, depending on if we're looking at PFOS, PFOA or PFHXS. 98% destruction is where we're seeing within the first sort of 10 to 24 hours, allowing discharge to water treatment plants. So we're meeting the on-site discharge requirements. Once they've treated it... I guess they have to stop the source of the PFAS, otherwise they have to keep treating, right? Yeah, so where things like Defluoro are really great is that these clients have identified that they are switching out to new products, fluorine-free foams and those sorts of things. So they're washing out their old infrastructure, generating that liquid and allowing that to go through Defluoro. So they are automatically knowing they have a requirement to treat that. It's part of their process which they're just calculating. Have you ever done a contaminated fire training pit successfully? No, so we haven't done that with Defluoro yet. But we certainly can. The data that we have, those numbers are fine. Do you think you will do that in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope we do that in Australia. I'm very positive we'll be doing that in the US. Quite a few of them still sitting there. Well, it's fantastic because any of that generated liquid that these fire pits produce or have as they get remediated, we can treat that. And these are going to be multiple opportunities that open up where defluoro can be used in that space. Fantastic. It's really great to talk about some PFAS solutions today. We've heard more problems at conference, but it's nice to have some solutions and you must feel very proud. Well, Kayleen, one thing I think that we're proud of is this has been a real global initiative from AECOM and the team is based heavily within Australia and the US, but it goes beyond that as well. But it has been real collaboration. And when we collaborate like that with our diversity of experience and skills, we're coming up with something that's you know really, really fantastic. And I think there's often ways where we forget how much coming together as a team can actually advance us so much further. Excellent. So that means it's time for you to go and network with Excellent. everybody else. And thank you for talking with me in Talking PFAS podcast. Thank you, Kaylee. Thank you. Thank you. Now to today's chat with Rachel Casson from ACOM. Rachel serves as the director of ACOM's International PFAS program, focusing on innovation and technical excellence. She has over 22 years of consulting experience in contamination, assessment and management. In 2008, Rachel recognised the emerging concern over PFAS with aviation and defence clients, positioning the ACOM team at the leading edge of the PFAS science. She's worked on over 100 plus PFAS related projects 
products across the globe. Rachel is part of the Defluro Technical Development Team, an electrochemical process that destroys PFAS in solution. Her other research programs include plant PFAS uptake study and evaluation of the transformation of PFAS precursors into perfluoroalkyl acids, down gradient of the known source zones. And I'll put a link in the show notes to that press release about Tefluro and also ACOM's website. Hi, Rachel. Nice to meet you at CRC Care Cleanup Conference 2022. Thank you, Kayleen. Nice to meet you as well. What are you doing at this year's conference? Are you one of the speakers? No, I'm not, but I'm mentoring one of the speakers. She's talking on our new technology called the Fluoro, and it uses electrochemistry to destroy the PFAS in solution. Okay. And who do you work for? ACOM. I'm the director of the PFAS International Program. I've worked on over 100 different projects across the globe, all corners of the world. How many years have you been working on PFAS? Uh, Since 2008 was my first job. How many countries? All the Scandinavian countries, UK, Italy, a lot in the US, in multiple states, different states, and here in Australia. And of all those places, what would you say, is it pretty even across the board, the contamination levels that you're seeing? or? Yeah, this is a really good question. It does vary. So PFAS contamination varies with the way it's used, whether it's been manufactured. It varies with the site-specific conditions, geology, surface water conditions, groundwater depth. There's so many factors that can actually influence the quantum of PFAS that you can detect. I would say, though, that AFFF-related sites are where you find the highest PFAS concentrations, and that's just simply because of the nature of use. They would discharge to ground. Whereas if you go to a manufacturing facility, yes, you still get contamination, but their ideal is to keep the substance because they sell it. They don't want to lose it. And it's expensive. And it's expensive, exactly. So, But you do get some air emissions around those manufacturing facilities. So it's different, again, to an AFFF site where you've discharged. But then in the air emissions, it could also result now that we know in rain as well and surface waters. Good point. Did you say which country you think is the worst? I don't think you could say that. They're all different for different reasons. The difference that I notice is the cadence of the project life cycle in the different regions and different jurisdictions. And I would say Australia is probably in advance of a lot of the other countries. What does it mean, cadence? The speed of the project and where they're up to in the life cycle. And Australia's advanced? Yeah, we are actually, in comparison with probably the Scandinavian and German paradigms. Right. So advanced in our methods or the speed of cleanup? The speed of investigation and risk evaluation and cleanup. Because we're smaller. We have a smaller number of sites. It was never manufactured here. So we've been able to be more agile and mobile and get out there and start to look at these things. Right. And we've also, at this conference, there's a lot of experts here. A hundred percent. Also, our regulators have gotten together and developed the NEMP, which you're probably aware of. And that's actually a really good way of giving guidance, a framework for managers of PFAS contamination and their consultants to go and investigate and evaluate and remediate as necessary. Excellent. Now, you've worked on PFAS since 2008, which is 14 years. What would be three key things that you could say from that experience of working with PFAS? Oh, that's a really tricky one. Or just maybe what you've seen over time? Yes, I've definitely seen an evolution in the way that we investigate 
and it's quite different to other contaminants. We look outside and then come back in because it's so widespread and so mobile. I would say also the level of investigation, we have to investigate larger areas than normal traditional contaminants. If you think a servo, you're just usually around the boundaries of the service station, whereas we're going kilometres away from the source. And that will also depend on where the aquifer flows underneath. Completely agree. So I think one of the reasons why Australia is taking a step into remediation faster than the other jurisdictions is because we take a risk-based approach and we look at not a concentration per se, but we look at mass flux and how can we reduce that? How can we stop the migration from the source moving across the boundary? And I think that's a really important point. Are we doing that? Yes, we have clients that are already have actually remediated a number of their sites, soil and groundwater. You've seen some success stories. Yes, I have. From large volumes of contamination? Yes, many, many thousands of tonnes. Many kilograms of PFAS have been dealt with. So what's been the most successful remediation method for water, in your opinion? That's a loaded question. If we're talking about ACOMS methods. So our method is really not looking at groundwater or surface water. It's more about the waste liquids. So when you go and clean out a fire truck or a fire suppression system, that flush of water has PFAS in it, we treat that. Or the AFFF concentrate that is no longer needed. Or they're banned. Yep, or they're transitioning to a fluorine-free one. We can look at treating those. So it's more on the waste side. And the other really great thing about the fluoro is we couple with those filtration technologies because they'll filter the water, they'll concentrate it, and then we attack that concentrate. So you don't have to ship it off-site. You're the kind of person I wanted to talk to because I just spoke with someone before about the filtration. I think he was from ECT2. Yeah, they use anion exchange resin. And then I said to him, what about destroying what comes out of the filtration? We've worked with ECT2. We've looked at the ion exchange resin. We've looked at foam fractionation. There's been a few other different types. And uh, there are other destructive technologies that are being researched as well. It's not just electrochemistry. There's plasma, there's sonication, there's thermal. There's a lot of teams actively searching for the best available, commercially viable technology. For destruction. For destruction. At the last cleanup conference I was here, everyone was still scrambling for remediation solutions, identification, remediation solutions and risk communication. I think at this conference there seems to be a lot more emphasis on those destructive methods or or people are more confident. We want to close the loop and we want to try and not ship it to another site as well, although there are off-site destructive treatment facilities in Australia. There's just only a few. There's a couple in Victoria, a couple in Queensland. You would be well aware of the US EPA developments. They've lowered the drinking water guidelines, which two of them are interim at this stage for PFOS and PFOA, but quite low. I think we're talking four picograms a litre instead of 70 nanograms a litre. I'd love to talk to you about what you think is going to happen as a result of that. And then also they want to list PFOA and PFOS as hazardous substances, and they've got a document in the Federal Register now now about that proposed rule that people can comment on. What do you think the implications might be of both of those? Firstly, the promulgation of the drinking advisories and making that a clean-up standard. They're also looking at that. Making it mandatory. Mandatory, that's right. I worry that they're racing towards zero and that they're not taking a risk-based approach and weighing up exposure and 
true toxicity. I also worry that they've released this because of one study and that they're concurrently doing some toxicity studies. They haven't finished those and they haven't reported them. So we should really wait for the results of those studies before they provide new advisories. And why do you worry about if they're racing towards zero? What would be the implications of that? That everyone has to clean up every molecule of PFAS on their site and that could be a financial impost because a lot of the impacted sites in the US are Department of Defence Force. So that's taxpayers' money that is being used to do that and I'm not sure that that's the best way to spend it. Yes, and I just heard in the previous session that I was in, the visiting speaker said that... Paul Nathaniel? Yeah, Paul Nathaniel said, you know, you have to establish that there's risk before just spending the money on remediation. I agree, because you don't want regret spend. You don't want to have to revisit a site as well. So there's two ways to look at it. You don't want to overspend and you don't want to underspend. You don't want to not have any measurable improvement in the environmental conditions. The hazardous, I do think that has ramifications for management off-site and for emissions coming off for licensing conditions. And again, I think they could be opening up a huge can of worms. Well, yeah, because I've talked to a lawyer in Boston in the podcast, John Gardella from CMBG3 Law, and he has said that if that rule goes ahead where they made hazardous substances, it could potentially open up previous Superfund sites that didn't look for PFAS and they now have to look for PFAS. 100% right. It's a really great point. And the other point I think we spoke about earlier together before we started our conversation, you talked about who owns the contamination, the complexity of trying to fingerprint or point to someone you're the true source of this contamination you have to clean up I think the lawyers will be the winners we now know that PFAS is in rain it's in biosolids it's in soil surface waters fish it's everywhere it's everywhere so it is going to be harder and harder to find out who is going to pay the bill exactly but what do you think the implications of US EPA if the proposed rule gets promulgated what might be the impacts for Australia because we still haven't ratified PFOS and PFAR on the Stockholm Yes, I think the biggest ramifications it could have here in Australia would be communicating the risk to communities and upsetting them and making the waters greyer again. And we still have class actions going. And we still have legal action. That was the other point I was about to make. We have the super class action. Exactly. So our Department of Health has to look at these new numbers and consider it from the Australian perspective and how we develop our guidance. So there's still that step to be done as well. Yeah. Um, Do you think we will ratify those chemicals in your opinion? Do you think it's coming? Yes, we'll ratify the Stockholm Convention. It's just taking a little while. There's a lot of assessments about the implications for industry if they do ratify. So they do a lot of survey work. But I do believe, and you probably could talk to Dr. Sarah Bromhill, who's here today, and she'll know more about where that is, the status of that. Is there anything else you want to say about what you've learned here so far or what you're hoping to learn at the conference? Yeah, I was really hoping to see if there are any advancements. Advancements in? In uh, remediation, mostly, and also understanding the distribution and the way the chemicals move through the environment. Were you surprised when you came to this conference, because I I was, just how many PFAS sessions are in the program? I've been to many conferences across the world and they're dominated. They have multiple streams on just PFAS. And they're the, usually those sessions that are most heavily attended as well. So People are still learning. Do you think it is the most problematic contaminant? Well, that's a really good question because there are probably other contaminants out there that are more toxic that we're not even looking at. That we know are toxic. That we know are toxic. The difference with PFAS, though, is that it's that mobility yeah. and getting into communities. That's the trigger. Moving long distances away from the source. 
So do you think the fact that PFAS has been well publicised in Australia, for instance, and other places where communities have been affected, and it's pretty hard to clean it up, and it's not, they're not being cleaned up in communities, do you think that has really spurred the action that we've seen in Australia? Yeah, you can understand from the community's perspective, can't you? Absolutely. They didn't ask for this. And their land, some of them can't sell their homes. Yeah. For Aussies, to own a home is a miracle anyway. And then if you lose the value of that. Exactly. And if you lower the number, like the Americans are talking about, your plume is going to grow. You're going to impact more people. So think about that as well. That's exactly right. And whether or not that lower number actually represents a true risk. That's a good point. I think we might finish there. Awesome. Thank you for talking with me on Talking PFAS podcast. Been a pleasure, Kayleen. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I encourage you to please share it and subscribe to the podcast so you do not miss an episode. There will be one more from the cleanup conference going up before the end of 2022 after Christmas. Then the podcast will be on a season break till about the end of February. I do encourage you to share the episode in its entirety, but remember all information in today's podcast is copyright. So please contact me at talkingpfas at gmail.com for any republishing permission. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.